You know, in the world today, not only Christians, but almost everyone knows the name C.S. Lewis. And that I am taking the title for the sermon today, The Tyranny of the Well-Intentioned, from a famous quote of C.S. Lewis. Christians know him as one of the foremost Christian apologists, philosophers, and writers of all time. A while back, I... He wasn't always known. I bought Niels a first edition of the Screw Tape Letters because though Niels has a difference in theology with C.S. Lewis, as I do, I've taught him well, that being he's an incredibly influential and honest writer in Christianity. Anyway, I bought him a first edition of the Screw Tape Letters where we are told on the inside cover that he is a fellow of Modeling College, Oxford. That's all they said about him. He was not known at the time of screw tape letters. He was known in academic circles because he was a fabulous uh, medieval literature professor at Oxford. Was famous in that field, but screw tape letters pretty early in his uh, Christian transformation. So anyway, it says that he was a fellow at Madeline College, and I am here to tell you that it does not say that inside his books anymore. You know, I, I, was, I was amused to see that at the time. The secular world also knows him, and they know him as the author of the children's classic series, The Narnia Chronicles. How famous are the Narnia Chronicles? Movies, at least two different movie, movie series have been made of those books in the last 40 years. Yet, when he died nearly 60 years ago, if his obituary was even published in newspapers, it would have gone unnoticed near the back. You see, Aldous Huxley, a darling of the left, the author of Brave New World and 50 other fiction and non-fiction works, died the same day as C.S. Lewis. Now, Aldous Huxley was considered the foremost intellectual of his time. Now, Lewis was just some obscure Christian writer, even in 1963. Aldous Huxley was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature, not one, not two, not nine times he was nominated for the Nobel Prize. C.S. Lewis was not. Okay, not once. So it's no surprise that Aldous Huxley's death would be front page news and C.S. Lewis relegated to the back page at the bottom. Except that day, even someone of Aldous Huxley's stature would not be on the front page. Because on the day Huxley and C.S. Lewis died, November 22nd, 1963, Somebody else, more famous at that time, died. And it was John F. Kennedy's assassination that was on the front pages. So those three all died the same day. But that being said, today C.S. Lewis is far more famous than Aldous Huxley. Lewis may be more famous today, 60 years later, than John F. Kennedy. Lewis authored more than 30 books, and it would be my guess that 60 years after his death, they are all still in print. Screw tape letters, mere Christianity, 
a grief observed. The great divorce, the problem of pain, not to mention the Narnia books and his Paralanda and science fiction books, are read and revered to this day. I would hazard a guess that he was second only to Winston Churchill, who I quoted extensively last week, so we'll have covered all the great 20th century English writers, but I would... He's probably the second most quoted English writer of the 20th century. And the one quote of his that is relevant to the passage we are studying here today is in Acts 8, 1 through uh, 4, goes like this. And this is C.S. Lewis. Of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Okay? I think... (laughs) Have we not seen this for the last three years, at least? In this hysteria of the COVID pandemic response, medical and political busybodies have said it's our duty to be vaccinated. To, without end. I mean, it goes on and on and on. If it just saves one life, it's your duty to protect others. I hear that constantly. Just one life, they say. Now, I read an article by a medical professional yesterday that said that as we go down the line, as many as 5% of the people who are vaccinated for COVID might die of those COVID vaccinations. At the time, that stands at 300 million people who may die to save one life. I mean, hey... You know, if just one life is saved by that vaccination, and it might turn out that only one life was saved by that vaccination. Beyond that, 50% of those vaccinated may suffer from debilitating health problems. Three billion people. Nearly half the world's population. But no, if it saves just one life, And let me see, one life versus 300 million, which is larger, right? We've seen the same argument about gun control. If it saves just one life, we must ban guns in the U.S. Well, of course, the FBI has statistics out showing that guns are used in a defensive manner to save lives three million times a year, okay? Three million times guns are used and I'm not saying they were shot I'm saying they're used to stop violence against people now I think that it's about 35,000 people who die by gun every year uh, the vast majority of them suicides okay but even so 35,000 deaths to 3 million defensive uses is a large disparity C.S. Lewis is right. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Now, if I may correct that great writer and moral philosopher, it's not that it may be the most 
oppressive tyranny, but that it is the most uh, oppressive tyranny. And the corollary of that, as we'll see today, is that tyranny in the name of God is just as oppressive, if not more so. So our passage for today, as I said, is Acts 8, and it's, uh, I'm going to read all of 1 through 4. Now Stephen, on trial before the Sanhedrin, has just been dragged out of Jerusalem and stoned to death. Verse 1a, where we stopped last week, said, And Saul approved of his execution. Now it continues on. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As we dive into this passage, the first thing I want to point out is that uh, Saul of Tarsus had shown up previously. Remember the name? Saul because he may show up in scripture again. Okay. <laughs> we'll probably see him again as a spoiler alert. I know you all know that. Now back in chapter 758b, Saul shows up for the first time. Luke pointed out that the men who stoned Stephen lay their outer garments at the feet, quote, of a young man named Saul. Now, every translation I saw and I counted them, there were 27, all refer to Saul as a young man. And yet, here in verse 3 it says that Saul is ravaging the church. Luke has been mocked by some commentators. They think that he was inaccurate here for this apparent contradiction. How, How could Saul be both a young man and have sole authority over imprisoning people? throughout Jerusalem. I mean, how does that work? Well, it's my favorite bugaboo. The Greek word that is translated young man here is a word that specifically means between the ages of 24 and 40. Okay? That's what the Greek word means. The ages before between 24 and 40. Now, I don't think that... Um, any of us would dispute the description of a 24-year-old as a young man. I was uh, uh, supervising my first construction site in Arby's Roast Beef in Bakersfield when I was 24. And I thought of myself as a pretty young man to be in charge of this construction site. 24. I think that's young. Uh, The old set 24 was was briefing the nuclear physicists at Los Alamos nuclear laboratory and I thought that's pretty young to be doing that so 24 is a young man now but 40 we describe that in our culture as middle age now I know they're pushing middle age a little bit further back when when I was younger middle age you know was like 36 to 55 and then you were elderly right well now they push maybe it's not middle age at 40 anymore but it's not a young man And as for a middle-aged man ravaging the church, 
I'm here to tell you they do it all the time. So that's not so surprising. It is believed that Saul was born about 2 AD. Okay? About seven years before Jesus. They keep revising all these things. So he's a rough contemporary of Jesus. So when you think of Saul, and you think of Saul being in Jerusalem, he was there at the same time as Jesus. And this event happened about 33 AD that we're talking about. So Saul, the young man, young man is 31 at the time. Okay? I think that the, that may fit the description of a young man and it is certainly not too young for significant responsibility within the Jewish leadership. So Luke should not be mocked for a seeming contradiction. Instead, I think we can all agree to blame the Greeks. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and their language. So, so back to verse 1b. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, note, note that who is left behind? The apostles go. So, there's, there's a persecution against the church, but not against the apostles. So, what's going on here? The rage of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders was not satisfied with the death of Stephen. Instead, it intensified into a general persecution of the church. It says that with the persecution, the Christians scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and uh, we'll see further further along that after a bit, they moved out of Judea and Samaria, and they moved to Antioch, they moved into Asia Minor, they moved to northern Egypt. But what we should see here, though, is that the persecution was mainly against the Hellenistic, Greek-speaking faction of the church. Remember who Stephen was. He was a Hellenistic. He was, his name is not a Hellenistic derivation of the Hebrew. It is a Greek name. He was a Greek-speaking Jew that became a Christian. I've told you before that amongst the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews were considered not quite real Jews. They were suspect, and we've seen that that carried over to the Christian community. In both the Jewish and Christian communities, the Hellenists believe in a more inclusive vision of God, an unbounded God, a God that would reach out to other cultures, which was abhorrent to the Hebraic Jews. That was their God. Remember that when at the time of the Babylonian exile, it was not known if God could be worshipped outside of Israel. And that's the whole point of the Talmud and the teachings was to keep God in the forefront of these people who were away from God. But the Hellenistic Jews and the Hellenistic Christians both had a more inclusive vision or understanding of God 
living amongst Gentiles as a minority alien population had knocked the edge off of their God's chosen people mindset, that 2,000-year-old chip on the Jewish shoulder. The Hellenists of both Jews and Christians were more accepting of Gentiles, and that enraged the Sanhedrin even more. So the Hellenistic Christians were driven out of Jerusalem, escaping to the rural areas of Judea and Samaria. And it is probably true that the, remember, there were visiting Jews to Jerusalem who have now joined the church. And they stayed there for the teachings of the church. They probably also left for Judea and Samaria where their homes were, at least for a while. So who did that leave in in Jerusalem? It left the apostles, and it left the rest of the disciples and the Hebraic Jewish residents of Jerusalem, Hebraic Jewish Christian uh, residents of Jerusalem, and it left them in relative peace. We find out later in Acts that the apostles stayed, and there was a largely Hebrew Christian church in Jerusalem until after the murder of James the Just, Jesus' brother. And then they picked missionary fields and disbanded. The church remained, and we'll see later on that the church was poor. We know that it was because Paul had people in the various churches in Asia Minor take up offerings to relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem church. So anyway, they're left roughly in peace. Verse 2 of chapter 8 says devout men buried Stephen and made great, great lamentation over him and just to make sure you understand Luke was not an eyewitness to these accounts he is putting together the early church history of the acts of the apostles he was not there so what he has is sources that he's putting together is this. So if it jumps around a little bit, he's trying to set the scene of what happened. And now we come to devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The Mishnah, which is the first century uh, commentary, or first century on commentary of the uh, Torah, forbids the mourning of those executed as criminals and also those who have been strangled and a couple other things. Uh, I'm only concerned with them being the execution of a criminal. So it's forbidden, if Stephen was executed as a criminal, for him to be mourned. That Stephen was mourned with great lamentation, and by the way, this wasn't apparently by fellow Christians. This was by Jews in the community who knew Stephen, who knew his reputation, had dealings with Stephen. So these Jews, who were not Christians, are the ones who buried uh, Stephen because the Christians were making haste to get out of the area and out of the way of the Jews. These men asked for Stephen's body, buried him, and made great lamentation over him. Proving one of two things. Either Stephen was lynched and murdered and therefore was not executed as a criminal, or the Jews did not accept the illegal trial of Stephen as judicially proper 
and were protesting the actions of the Jewish leaders. We don't know which of those two were true. One of them is. At any rate, the men bearing Stephen and lamenting him, as I said, were probably not Christians, but Jews who knew of Stephen and his sterling reputation. Verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And I'm going to break this down into four pieces here. Seems pretty simple, but I've got four points here. The word translated ravaging here is also used in Scripture to mean to destroy, to ruin, and to damage. In secular writings of the time, it means it was used of destroying a city or mangling by a wild beast. John MacArthur sums it up by saying, Saul literally tore the church apart. When it says that Saul was tearing the church apart, Saul tore the church apart, physically. Luke says here that Saul entered house after house. That's my second point here. We do not know if these were the houses of individuals or the larger homes of the wealthier Christians who made them available as home churches. Because that's what all churches were at this time in Jerusalem, were home churches. So we do not know truly if he was going after individual Christians or if he was attacking churches as they were meeting themselves. We don't really know that. Paul may very well have been arresting entire churches at a time which would very well tear apart the church. It goes on to say that, point three, he dragged off men and women. And that seems like a dramatic term, but the term that's here used as dragged off actually is used for dragging fish out of the sea in Galilee. It is a literal dragging Note also that it is not just men, and this is either point three or four of what may be five points, not just men being dragged off, but women as well. Christianity has always been a community of equals between the, count them, two sexes. Women have always been an equal within the church, as we often say. Maybe not of jobs, but equality of personhood within the understanding of Christianity. Though they were equals, this might have been a case where women might have wished to have been discriminated against and not arrested. So both men and women were committed to prison. Now, I went out of my way to find out what committed to prison means. I mean, I know what it means to be thrown into prison. But this is sort of open-ended, and we don't ever get in Acts what happened to these people. Were, were there trials? Were there convictions? What was the Jewish law on sentences for being a Christian? What happened to these, our brothers and sisters from so long ago? And frankly, I could not find out. Nobody touches on this, so I'm going to have to look into it more. But nothing that I see tells me what happened to these people that Paul, that Saul, dragged off and threw into prison? So, though I couldn't find out, suffice it to say, 
that whatever it was, Saul felt guilty for the rest of his life about what he did to these people. And so, what was the result of all the persecution brought by Saul against the young church? Well, the result was what it proved to be also during Judaism's long history. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Throughout history, God has used persecution, exile, and even slavery to spread his kingdom. Uh, It is no different now with the persecution of the church. Hardship has never destroyed the faith of the elect. In fact, prosperity has had more to do with hindering the church than persecution has. Persecution has always strengthened the church. Those driven out of Jerusalem by Saul just go elsewhere and preach the word. This will eventually force Saul farther afield in his persecution of Christians until he finds himself on the road to Damascus, or more accurately, Jesus finds him there. So Saul of Tarsus has made the mistake of imposing his own tyranny on Christians in the name of God. Now how many times has this happened in history? Many people in in rejecting Christianity and thus belief in God point to the um, poisonous and often murderous conflicts between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism 500 years ago. You know, they say, I don't believe in Christianity. Christianity is always either persecuting the Jews or fighting among each other or uh, the crusades against Islam, they will say. Both sides between the Protestants and the Catholics claim to be doing God's will. Though it's obvious both couldn't be. Saul thought he was standing up for God here, doing the will of God, but all he was truly doing was enforcing Jewish tradition on these new Christian and the Christian church. God had long before left Judaism. He was already doing a new work, his final work, in the redemption of man. Instead of standing for God, and you remember what Gamaliel said when they were had the apostles before the Sanhedrin on trial. And Gamaliel said, you might be found to be standing against God. Well, instead of standing for God, he instead was found to be opposing God. Do we know this for certain? People say, if God would come down from heaven and tell me, I would believe. Well, Paul had that unforgettable position in world history of God, Jesus, coming to him personally and letting him, Saul, know that he was on the wrong side. Saul, to his credit, well, he was blind, so I don't know how much credit I'm not going to give him here, but Saul, to his credit, immediately changed his ways and would forever be known as the Apostle Paul. 
Now a final point as we close today. Christianity as well as Judaism before it is corrupted when it seeks to be a political power. God wanted to be the king of Israel, but the Jews demanded a human king, and they got Saul. Then they got David, who was a better king, but it devolved into that Judaism became a political system even more than it was a religion. Remember, the Sanhedrin during Jesus' time did not believe in Judaism. They weren't Jews. They were the rulers, but they weren't Jews. The wielding of political power by the priesthood led ultimately to the priest putting to death the king of kings, the creator of all creation. This is what political power led to amongst the Jews. Christianity Christianity fell into politics first with the Emperor Constantine and the politicization of Christianity continues to this day in the uh, guise of official state religions and which instead of strengthening Christianity if you look at the official religions of the Scandinavian countries or Germany or any of those types of countries there is no religion they are secular even though they have a state religion. I would say that Constantine, by declaring all of his people Christians, instead did more harm to Christianity. For the next 1,600 years, at least 1,000, than the persecutions under the Roman Empire uh, emperors did. Imposing Christianity on populations, first, does not make people Christian. And second, weakens God's kingdom by declaring everybody in the world a Christian. If everybody's in the world is a Christian, then nobody in the world is a Christian. Even as godly a man as John Calvin, and he really did try to be, ran into... Uh, trouble in his administration of Geneva, Switzerland. And it's the one big blot on his reputation is the state-ordered executions of heretics that he did try to mitigate, but that he was ultimately in charge of. Now, I have read, may be true, may not be true, that Baptists, (laughs) which we all are here in one way or another, are the only Christian denomination that has not politically oppressed other groups. If that is true, it is for two reasons. Uh, Baptists aren't a denomination uh, or an idea more than anything else. We're an attempt at living in accordance with God's word. And because Baptists strongly believe in what we in the U.S. call the separation of church and state, is the second reason that we have not oppressed people, is that we don't believe that we should be in political power as a movement. As an individual, yes, but as a movement, no. While Christians are called to be good citizens, and while we may desire to be governed by Christian ideals, this is not to be accomplished by force and coercion, but by persuasion and the leading of the Holy Spirit.
You know, I stand up here every week, and in preaching, I am doing what is called speaking for God. But in doing so, I hope I have never told you what to believe. My job is not to tell people what to believe. My job is to preach the word of God in the best, truest, and most winsome way I can. But it's not to tell you what to believe. That is not my job. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to make these things clear. My job is to preach the word, teach scripture to the best of my ability, using the best resources I can, the most orthodox teachings I can find. But I can't tell you what to believe. You know, some might say that I'm doing it wrong, okay? I'm not making any converts, you know? We don't have altar calls. Well, I could do it, I guess. But our job is not to make converts. A Christian's job is not to make converts. God's job is to make converts. What is our job? Jesus gave us a job. He said, go out and make disciples of all the peoples. Disciples become disciples made out of converts. We don't convert. God converts. We make disciples. The tyranny of the well-intentioned, the tyranny of the kind, actually cannot ever be kind. The tyranny of the kind can never be kind because it's a tyranny. We are disciples of God, not followers of tyranny. Let's close in prayer.